Hello, my fellow Americans, by which I mean anyone on planet Earth. It's just my cute little nickname for any uh, audience members out there. Welcome to Better Than Washington. My name is Duncan, and this is the podcast where we review presidents in a comparison-based context. We'll see who was good, who was bad, and who was ugly. But not really. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Today, we are continuing our review of George Washington, the very first president of the United States. We'll be discussing the fourth year of his presidency, as well as the final year of his first term, which ran from April 1st, 1792 to March 4th, 1793. And just a quick note about this episode, you may notice the time code is a bit smaller than my last few episodes of Better Than Washington, and that's because in order to figure out if Washington really was better than Washington this year, we had to do a lot of research and talk about some pretty big events that changed the shape of American history. As a result, I had so much to talk about and so little time to talk about it due to my personal schedule that I am splitting this episode in half, just like we did with the first year of Washington's presidency. So do not worry, the second half is coming soon. We'll be here same time, same podcast channel. Just want to let you know that we are splitting the episode in half again, and we just wanted to make sure that you got some content rather than none. I don't know why I said we. This is a one-man show, just me, but you know what I mean. All right. Is Washington better than Washington? The first thing we discuss every year on the podcast is the economic decisions made with the authority of the president, whether those are bills signed into law or policies and practices of the Treasury Department. Once again, we enter the most unplanned segment of this podcast. What did Hamilton do? Well, actually, Hamilton didn't do that much this year, at least not economically. He was kind of busy getting Washington to do something about the Whiskey Rebellion. More on that later, though. Still, that doesn't mean his ideas weren't being used. On April 2nd, 1792, the Coinage Act is passed, creating the U.S. Mint and the modern U.S. dollar. Obviously, these steps were originally proposed by Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton, and George Washington signed the law to make it work. And that's really it. Wikipedia claims that at some point in 1792, America's first blast furnace, which will make both the Industrial Revolution and our current climate crisis possible, was built in Pittsburgh. No other place online I looked at could confirm if that was true, however. And frankly, even if it was, the presidential cabinet, nor the president himself, had nothing to do with that. However, even though the Coinage Act was the only development for the year in terms of the economic score, it was still a big one. The history of currency in colonial America was a mess, and giving the United States the ability to print federally backed money was a big deal. Washington, by signing the Coinage Act into law and by hiring the guy who proposed the idea, does get a positive two in economy this year. Well, that was fast. Next, we have to see how the United States' diplomatic decisions affected both the nation itself and the rest of the world. 
did George Washington, and therefore Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, do enough to protect everyone for a more prosperous society? Well, this is a year where the United States mostly stayed the course. We gave positive marks to George Washington a couple episodes ago for hiring William Short to be the United States Minister, or Ambassador, to France. He was a good pick at the time, and he did his job honestly for as long as he could, eventually having his responsibilities extended to serve as Minister to Spain. Unfortunately, he got a little too close to the situation. During his time working in and with revolutionary France, he began an affair with a married French noblewoman, which began to color his perspective. Then, she rejected him, which affected his work. And then, as we will get into very shortly, the conflicts that France and Spain entered made achieving any positive results with either nation extremely difficult. Therefore, he wasn't getting the results he needed from either France or Spain, so unfortunately, through no fault of his own necessarily, although the affair definitely was his fault, William Short had to go. On June 3, 1792, Washington replaced William Short with Governor Morris. God, that's such a weird first name. Governor. I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing it right. While replacing Short was the right call, replacing him with Morris was a bit more controversial. In one sense, he was incredibly successful, as he was the only foreign minister to serve in his post throughout the entire Reign of Terror, which we'll describe in a bit. That obviously required him to carefully choose his words and opinions to maintain America's neutrality with revolutionary France, and not die or run away in the process. He had a particularly movie-worthy moment when, to defend himself from being hanged by a mob, he tore off his own wooden peg leg, held it in the air, and screamed, I gave my leg for liberty! The mob then cheered him and backed off. However, he was a vocal critic of revolutionary France, at least to his fellow Americans. Even though he was a member of the Continental Congress during the American Revolution and a framer of the Constitution, he also had a not-so-secret sympathy for pro-monarchy philosophies. So, when he saw the regular outbursts of violence that defined much of the French Revolution, he simply believed that the French people, unlike European Americans like himself, somehow couldn't handle the responsibilities of being a republic. Therefore, he thought that the French monarchy should have been maintained. He also had a massive soft spot for Marie Antoinette and, to put it lightly, vehemently criticized France for the way they treated her specifically. So we have someone who was supposed to make sure France didn't pull the United States into a European conflict, but was perfectly happy to piss off the French public while doing so. Even if he wasn't the worst choice for ambassador, he clearly was not the best. Nonetheless, he kept America out of France's drama, just as Washington had been working towards for the last three years. Which was good because the happy days of the French Revolution were gone. This is the year that the Reign of Terror and the French Revolutionary Wars really begin. So, do you remember how, after being captured in the flight to Varennes, King Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette of France were confined to the Tuileries Palace? Well, Marie had a brother named Leopold II, who just so happened to be both the King of Austria and, as a result, the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. 
you might have heard of them. The idea that many French citizens were considering treating his sister like a criminal was offensive to him, but he also had a vested interest in preventing revolutionary ideas from taking over his expansive domain. He also had a bunch of French nobles hanging out in Austria. These were the people who, instead of adapting to changing times, chose to flee France and beg Leopold to invade their own homeland, you know, that whole betray your country in order to save your country thing. These chumps probably oversold how bad things were in their country and asked Leo to make it a great again. So, with the backup of his ally who was supposed to have the best army in Europe, that ally being King Frederick William II of Prussia, Leopold issued an ultimatum to revolutionary France, protect Louis and Marie, or suffer an indeterminate form of revenge. Leo didn't really mean for this to be a real threat as much of a way to keep his sister alive and uh, make those French runaways happy so they would stop bothering him. France, on the other hand, thought he was being serious. They issued a counteroffer to Leopold, renounce your alliances with anyone hostile to France, and pull your troops away from the border with France, or else. Leopold wrote a hasty, evasive reply that just didn't sit well with the French. Thus, on April 20th, 1792, France declared war on Austria. Prussia joined the fray by declaring war on France on June 13th, and France, understanding that even more nations might jump in, decided to just go all out and declared war on even more nations on February 1st, 1793, Britain, Spain, and the Dutch Republic. Thus began the French Revolutionary Wars, a series of conflicts that were divided between two phases. The first phase, the War of the First Coalition, lasted from April 20th to October 18th, 1797. The First Coalition saw France take on the Holy Roman Empire, which again included Austria, Prussia, the Dutch Republic, Great Britain, Spain, hence the problems William Short was having, Portugal, the Kingdom of Sardinia, the Kingdom of Naples, also known as the Kingdom of Sicily for some weird reason, the Republic of Venice, the Papal States, and several other Italian city-states. Then there was the War of the Second Coalition, which ran from November 29, 1798 to March 25, 1802, wherein France, Spain, and Denmark-Norway went up against the United Kingdom, the Holy Roman Empire, or more accurately, what was left of it, the Ottoman Empire, Portugal, Russia, Naples, Malta, and Tuscany. Both conflicts also saw those same French nobles who egged on Leopold marching in as a foreign legion against their homeland. It's a really good thing the United States stayed out of these conflicts as much as they could because many nations did not survive the French Revolutionary Wars. See, whenever France took over a territory that belonged to one of their combatants, especially with the Holy Roman Empire, they transformed the lands they conquered into a sister republic. These proxy nations were nothing more than tools the French used to break apart coalitions and maintain international political and economic power throughout their reign. And many of them didn't even last that long anyways. The Dutch Republic became the Batavian Republic during the First Coalition, Many of those Italian states I didn't bother to name were similarly transformed, and between having some member states become sister republics and others forced into self-reliance due to poor logistics, the Holy Roman Empire was mortally wounded. It would eventually fall to France in a later series of wars. Spain, in order to avoid that fate, 
switched sides halfway through the war and became a friend of France rather than an enemy. So when I've been saying that the United States wouldn't survive France's crap and that George Washington was right to declare complete neutrality, I was not joking. The last thing America needed was for an angry, volatile France to turn them back into 13 separate sister republics. But it wasn't just the external chaos of France that would have ruined the nation, uh, the United States nation. Way back when Leopold II told France, hey, don't mess with my sister, please, some of the French revolutionaries decided the best response was to mess with his sister. On August 10th, 1792, those revolutionaries who lost faith in compromising with monarchs now stormed the Tuileries Palace and captured Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. Now, I know I made it sound like this was just a reaction to Leopold because that was, you know, funny, but the reality is that Louis wasn't doing himself any favors. Whether he was just sick of compromising with commoners or he really believed that the other kings of Europe would come save him, he had spent the spring and summer of 1792 constantly vetoing any new measure put forth by the National Assembly. This angered the revolutionaries even more than they were already mad at him for that whole running away and trying to start a counter-revolution thing. So, in a way, both Louis and Leopold ruined everything for the constitutional monarchy model. Between Louis and Marie's arrest on August 10th and their criminal trial on December 26th, France had several other destabilizing developments. The National Assembly formally abolished the monarchy and became a republic in practice and in title on September 21st. On November 19th, the Assembly signed a pledge to support the overthrow of non-republic governments in other nations, hence the precedent for building sister republics that would be dependent on and vulnerable to French policies. And in the background of all of that, under the leadership of such bloodthirsty revolutionaries as Maximilien Robespierre, the guillotine started being used to execute anyone accused and, quote, convicted of being an enemy to the revolution and, therefore, to France. It was inevitable, then, that on January 21st, 1793, the former French king, Louis XVI, was executed by guillotine. Marie Antoinette would be executed on October 16th just nine months later. So far, when we've been talking about the relationship between the United States and the French Revolution, we've only been talking about how they might have been ruined if they actively engaged in the French Revolutionary Wars. However, neutrality between nations serves a different purpose as well. It allows the public citizenry of one nation to view the other nation objectively, and then decide if they like what the nation does. Before Louis XVI died, many Americans, especially Thomas Jefferson and his Jeffersonian Republicans, were die-hard believers that the French Revolution was a perfectly good thing and should be supported. That meant that we had an active voter base who wanted us as involved in France as possible. But once the former king's head was rolling on the ground, America shuddered in disgust. This was not the kind of revolution they wanted for themselves or their French friends. So, if that voter base had gotten what it wanted, they would have now be struggling to figure out whether they should pull out their support and risk France and Spain's wrath, or continue their support and risk Britain and Spain's wrath, because, you know, Spain was kind of swapping sides there in the war. But Washington didn't buckle to that public pressure. The public was saved from making a terrible mistake it would have regretted. So, we have another year where Washington and the people he hired did largely the same stuff in Europe, but yielded much, much greater results. 
But it gets even better as Washington finally tried negotiation with the First Nations of the United States. Of course, those negotiations were still duplicitous and one-sided, but at least he wasn't burning as many villages as before. During 1792, while the United States was struggling to rebuild after St. Clair's defeat, George Washington and Secretary of War Henry Knox finally sent peace emissaries to try and negotiate terms with the Western Confederacy. The first group were killed by Confederacy forces in April. Fool me once, shame on you. The second group was killed in May. Fool me twice, shame on me. However, a third group in June, mostly made of Kentucky settlers, were able to conduct a successful trade of prisoners of war between themselves and the individual Native Americans within the Confederacy. That act of goodwill allowed Knox to send a fourth delegation to meet with the First Nations based in the Wabash River. Some of these communities were able to establish a treaty with the United States, thereby removing as many as 800 warriors from the conflict without further bloodshed. Unfortunately for the indigenous peoples of the area, Congress never actually got around to ratifying the treaty, so, you know, more proof that the just Indian policy was anything but. The timing for these peace commissions were actually quite decent, as the Western Confederacy was also considering peace. In September of 1792, British liaisons Alexander McKee and Simon Gertie and several other nations within the Confederacy held a grand council near the Auglaise and Maumee Rivers. The more warlike factions, which included both the Miami and Shawnee as well as Gertie, hotly debated the approach the war should take with the more moderate faction, consisting mainly of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, also known as the Iroquois, they agreed upon their terms and sent them to Knox. Those terms were, the Ohio River had to be the boundary between the First Nations and the United States. All forts bordering the Ohio River had to be abandoned and destroyed. And the Western Confederacy would meet with the United States at the Sandusky River in 1793 to discuss further terms. While no one in America was willing to give up the Ohio River or its forts, Knox did order a halt to all offensive campaigns until the Sandusky River meeting could be held. So let's review. Washington, either by direct policy or staying out of everybody else's way, fostered a time of reduced hostilities among nations foreign and domestic. If the American-Indian negotiations had borne better fruit, we might have even been looking at Washington's first-ever positive three for diplomacy. Unfortunately, whether by racism, greed, revenge, or all of the above, Knox's ability to effectively negotiate was hampered by both Congress and the Western Confederacy. Still, I'm giving George Washington a positive two for diplomacy this year. He's showing serious improvement, and I don't want to ignore that. Also, I am happy to report that I don't have to talk about events happening in France for a little while. Not to spoil future episodes, but the chaos of the French Revolutionary Wars and America's decision to stay out of them will be the status quo for the rest of the Washington presidency. Apologies to any Francophiles in the audience. Now, let's go to the war score. I have been excessively critical of how George Washington handles being the commander-in-chief because I have drawn a thorough line between the types of campaigns he ordered or enabled and the lengthening of the war, 
thereby increasing the lives lost on both sides of the conflict. But this year, we actually have a positive development we can talk about. We're going to redirect our attention back to Henry Knox, who has not had the best time of being Secretary of War. None of the major offensives of the Northwest Indian War provided the results he was looking for, and he probably wasn't too thrilled to have been pinpointed as one of the main reasons why St. Clair's defeat was as bad as it was. And previously, when we first introduced Henry Knox to the narrative, we mentioned that he actually had some, at least lip service opinions, to the idea that indigenous Americans had basic human rights as well as property rights. So we shouldn't discount the possibility that he is actually feeling legitimately guilty for letting the war run as long as it has. Regardless, Knox needed a solution in case the negotiations fell through, and he needed one fast. Thankfully, he got one. Even after passing the Militia Acts of 1792, Congress still understood that Knox and the War Department would need even more soldiers for the Federal Army. Not just that, but these new soldiers would have to be rigorously trained, thoroughly supplied, and not allowed to just run away halfway through a march. By summer of 1792, a force of 5,190 fresh troops named the Legion of the United States had been raised, trained, and held at Fort Jefferson. They spent the year protecting their supply trains from the Western Confederacy while the final war strategies were finalized and the peace talks continued. Of course, the Legion would need a leader. A leader who did not follow the same strange strategies that Knox and St. Clair and Harmar had followed. They needed somebody radical. They needed somebody who could think outside the box. They needed a madman. And so, Knox elected Major General Mad Anthony Wayne to be the leader of the Legion of the United States. George Washington wasn't too thrilled about the suggestion, but after talking about it with the rest of his cabinet, all of whom approved the choice, Washington nominated Wayne. Wayne ended up whipping the Legion into shape, while making sure that they were never in want of supplies or decent pay. He maintained their morale and their order, while also maintaining their defensive lines against the skirmishes from the Western Confederacy. So even though Knox was pursuing negotiations with the Western Confederacy, neither he nor the president were willing to give up the Ohio River forts, and the Confederacy was not willing to wait for those forts to be demolished, so it is really a good thing that the Legion was there to protect the forts. Um, a good thing from the United States perspective, obviously. We're still talking about a genocidal war that Wayne is now becoming one of the belligerents in, so, you know, we don't want to give too much credit. The occasional skirmishes that I'm referencing began on June 25th, 1792, almost as soon as the Legion of the United States inhabited Fort Jefferson. The Confederacy launched an attack against soldiers gathering hay for the fort's horses. Sixteen soldiers were either missing in action or killed in action as a result of the ambush. The Confederacy then continued their intermittent assaults and besiegement of the fort throughout the rest of the Northwest Indian War. Another specific offensive that we can talk about happens on November 3rd, when Miami Chief and Confederacy hero Michikanaqua, otherwise known as Little Turtle, gathered a force of 200 Miami and Shawnee to sneak into the lands between Fort Jefferson, Fort St. Clair, and Fort Hamilton. 
All of this was calculated, by the way. Little Turtle chose the date so he could score another victory on the one-year anniversary of St. Clair's defeat, and he chose warriors from the Miami and the Shawnee Nations because they were the two First Nations most closely associated with the defeat of Arthur St. Clair. While scouting these lands, Little Turtle found a force of 100 Kentucky militiamen and 100 horses camped outside Fort St. Clair, en route to Fort Jefferson. Little Turtle's party attacked at dawn. The militia, under the command of Major John Adair, made a careful organized retreat back to Fort St. Clair. While Adair's efforts definitely saved lives, Michigan Aqua wasn't actually after their lives. He was after their supply lines. The Miami and Shawnee captured the provisions meant for Fort Jefferson, and the militia, after the battle, was only able to recover 23 of those 100 horses. The rest were either driven off or killed. Now, of course, Adair paints this as a victory when he's giving his report to Congress, as well as claiming that the Legion of the United States, under Wayne's advisement, failed to protect him, and that's the only reason he lost the horses. Regardless, this is a year we finally see an improvement for Washington's success as Commander-in-Chief as the Legion of the United States, and Mad Anthony Wayne specifically, will be crucial to ending the Northwest Indian War. I know we can't really pinpoint a specific victory in the handful of fights the U.S. Armed Forces had this year, but they also maintained minimal losses, and were building momentum towards ending the war. And even better yet, we're not seeing indigenous American citizens that are non-combatants having to die and suffer because of an incompetent strategy Washington cooked up. So, you know, we're taking our victories where we can grab them. And as a result of that excessively lenient interpretation of American history, I am giving George Washington a positive one for war this year. Of course, the year's not over yet, as we still have other things to talk about. We have to talk about Washington's integrity of office. We have to talk about how he handles civil rights this year. And we have to talk about his history of bipartisanship. But again, I had to split this episode in half, so we're going to talk about those in a couple weeks. But for now, we have a good sense of how Washington is improving some of his areas where he wasn't necessarily the best at previously. And that's something that we can take with us for a while. But I don't want to leave you totally hanging because we have some fun facts about this presidential year to discuss. On May 11th, 1792, a merchant captain from Massachusetts named Robert Gray becomes the first European-American to visit the Pacific Northwest, you know, the modern-day states of Oregon and Washington. He was exploring the Columbia River at the time to trade pelts with the indigenous Americans of the area. Eventually, his expedition will be used by the United States as justification for claiming those lands. So, you know, more tragedy and genocide incoming, unfortunately. Even though the Democrat-Republican Party existed in reality since last year, this year, on May 13th, is when they are formally organized into a real political party, what with the election of 1792 coming up. Then, on June 1st, Kentucky joins the Union as the 15th United State. And on July 18th, John Paul Jones, the naval hero of the American Revolution, passes away. And on September 18th, George Washington laid the cornerstone for the future U.S. Capitol building, where the United States Congress will meet and continue to meet to this day. At the time that Washington had laid the stone, it was going to be called the Congress House. Kind of nice that they updated the name. 
Then, on October 13th, just one day after New York City celebrates the first official Columbus Day holiday, construction of the President's House, or as we know it today, the White House, finally begins. But it won't be completed until September 1st, 1800, towards the end of the Adams presidency. That's it for this episode. My fellow audience, thank you for listening to Better Than Washington. My name is Duncan, and I will see you all next time. Better Than Washington uses the song Americana by Mr. Smith under a fair use attribution license. You can find that song and the other works of Mr. Smith at the Free Music Archives, freemusicarchives.org. If you want to support the podcast, please give it a like and leave as many stars as you can on a review on whichever podcast platform you are currently using. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at ThanWashington with a capital T and a capital W. If you really like the podcast, you can also sign up to give monthly donations at anchor.fm slash better hyphen than hyphen Washington. Also, if you want to fact check me, which I always encourage people to do, I did my preliminary research on Wikipedia and then used other resources I could find online in order to corroborate select claims. Some of the resources I used include several additional resources discussing the various conflicts between the United States and Native American societies. These were found on poetomyheritage.com, history.com, which is, I know, is a little iffy, and an article titled Under the Auspices of Peace at Capola, C-U-P-O-L-A, dot Gettysburg, dot E-D-U. And for even more information about the Legion of the United States, I read part of Defending a New Nation, 1783 to 1811, this is an ebook that can be found on the U.S. Army Center of Military History website, history.army.mil. That's M I L. Have a great day, everyone. I hope you're doing well, and I hope this episode was informative and fun. Farewell for now.